Good morning. Good to see you. I'm Dan Allen. Turn in your Bibles, please, with, to, with me to the book of John. In the Gospel of John, the Bible is split up. If you don't have one, uh, there's one in the rack in front of you. You're welcome to take it home with you as well. Uh, there's two sections in the Bible. There's the Older Testament and the New Testament. And at the beginning of the New Testament, there are four Gospels. They take the life of Jesus and spin it and look at the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in John chapter 11. Our study through the Gospel of John began last spring. And now we come to Jesus' final days before the cross. After today, uh, Pastor Josh is going to push pause on our series in John, and he will pick it up after Christmas. So, you know, Lord willing, <laughs> in January 7th, on January 7th, uh, you will come back together, and we will look at the events that took place on what is now called, we look back on as Palm Sunday. So that helps give you some context. Palm Sunday is just literally days before the cross. So I wanted to set the scene for you of where we're at in John chapter 11. We're going to pick up the, the, the story here. The main characters are Mary and Martha. They are sisters, and their brother Lazarus has died. Uh, Jesus loved this family, and so he travels to their home in Bethany. Now, Bethany is located about two miles east of Jerusalem. My wife and I, Holly, were there a year ago in October. And um, you know, just Jerusalem, the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives, and just over, uh, there's Bethany. So it's a real place, and Jesus is on his way there. And when he finally arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for four days. But when Jesus and Mary and Martha and a whole group of their Jewish friends and mourners, when this whole group goes to the tomb, Jesus calls Lazarus back to life. That's right. He calls Lazarus back to life. And that's where Josh left off last week, all right? So we're, we're going to pick it up in chapter 11, verse 45. So I want you to put yourself at the graveside in Bethany. And you are watching a couple people remove the grave cloths off of the now very alive Lazarus. All right, so get in where you can see <laughs> what's happening. And uh, here's where we're going to go. And this section goes John 11:45 through chapter 12, verse 11. This is all connected. Are you ready? Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans are going to come and take away both our place here at the temple and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, says, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. But now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he'll not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. 
Now, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a party, they gave a dinner, right, for him there. Martha served, Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table, and Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. So Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, when a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You know, there are certain cultural moments that become flashpoints because they bring to the surface what people really believe about something. For example, there's a number of them that are going on around us right now and have gone, for example, the war in Israel. The war in Israel is a cultural moment around the world, right? And it brings to the surface the question, what do you really believe about the Jews? Issue one recently was a cultural moment for us in the state of Ohio. Issue one, right, became brought to the surface. What do people really believe about abortion? I'm sure you remember how George Floyd's death was a cultural moment that became a flashpoint, and it brought to the surface what people really believed about racism. And so what is happening here in the Gospel of John, you have to understand this, it's where we're at in the story. This moment in the Gospel is this, not George Floyd's death, but it was Lazarus' death and resurrection. There was this cultural moment that became a flashpoint that brought screaming to the surface, okay, what do we really believe about Jesus? I mean, he had all along, you know, you've been, if you've been with us through the study in the Gospel of John, all along Jesus' public ministry is making these radical claims. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I mean, who says that? Who says that? You know, <laughs> you know if one of my kids would have grown up and said, hi, Dad, I'm the light of the world. Yeah, son, you know, you need to wake up, you know. I mean, who says this, right? And then Jesus comes and says, I am the resurrection and the life. So he's making these radical claims, but he's backing it up with these radical signs, these miraculous uh, things that he, he brings about that are called these signs. He's one, so he says, I'm the bread of life, and then he feeds 5,000 people. He says, I'm the light of the world, and then he heals a man born blind. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And this becomes a flashpoint that brings to the surface what all these people are really believing about Jesus, and it sets these plots in motion that are going to lead to the death of Jesus on the cross. So this is where we are. This is what we just read. These are the things that are swirling around, and you're in the middle of the story, and, um, and what, what can we learn from this? What do we take away from this? A couple things I want to look at. First, is it, do you notice the different positions about Jesus that come to the surface? In other words, if Lazarus' death was this flashpoint, it brought to the surface what people really believe about Jesus. Since you asked the question, what's your position on Jesus? We'll look at the groups here in Scripture, and we'll ask ourselves the same question. What you'll find out is there's, a, there's three groups that kind of emerge here 
in, in, in the text. And in response to the question, what's your position on Jesus? One group is going to say, Jesus is a problem to be eliminated. Another group is going to say, well, Jesus is a point of interest to follow. And another group is going to say, well, Jesus is the promised Savior, and I believe in him. So let's look at this. First of all, there's a group that Jesus, what's, what's your position? Well, he's a problem to be eliminated. These were the religious leaders. This is where the religious leaders were. Notice in chapter 11, verses 47 and 48, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans are going to come and take away our place and our nation. So they, the council is this group of 70 people. These are the religious leaders. These are the people who are in power. And they get together and go, what are we going to do with this Jesus? Well, here's what they decided. Verse 53, uh, it says, So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, uh, 10 and 11, again, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, and they were believing in Jesus. So these religious leaders, they're going, look, as long as Jesus goes around, heals a few people, and says some nice things, and doesn't get too set, doesn't get too personal, that's fine. But he's become a problem that we cannot ignore. So what, what, what's your position on Jesus? You say, well, I'm not ready to kill him. Well, I, you know, but but do, you ever, do you ever feel like, hey, wait a minute, Jesus is nice as long as, you know, he gets some nice sayings and tells some nice stories about him. But all of a sudden, when, when Jesus uh, gets to the place where, you know, uh, you know, he's a problem, you know, if he gets too much control in my life. Do you see Jesus as someone who's going to ruin your life if he gets too much control? Maybe you're, maybe you're dating somebody, you're interested in somebody, and all of a sudden, they're really getting fired up about Jesus. You go, well, that's fine. You know, that's pretty cool. Well, all of a sudden, they're like really fired up with Jesus. They're really serious about Jesus. And you're going, well, wait a second. This could become a problem here in our relationship, and I'm not sure how much I want to be hanging around them. I've seen it happen over the years in marriages a lot. Somebody's married, and one of the spouses really gets fired up about Jesus. And the other spouse goes, that's nice. And then pretty soon they're going, hey, hang on here. I'm a little concerned about what's going on. And then the spouse, the husband, starts giving away money and everything else. And the wife goes, just a second. I think this Jesus thing is becoming a problem. Yogi Berra was a catcher for the New York Yankees. He's famous for a bunch of his sayings. He, he, was, he was a riot. Catch for the Yankees. The story was that he's behind the plate and uh, up to bat, a batter comes up to bat, and they used to do this. Uh, they would take their bat and make the sign of the cross on home plate, and the batter did that, and when he was done, Yogi Berra took his mitt and wiped the plate off and said, let's leave him out of this. <laughs> For Judas, Jesus became a problem. You say, Jesus, this is one of Jesus' disciples. I know. Somewhere along the line, Judas all of a sudden goes, oh, wait a second, Jesus is a problem. Jesus was not serving Judas' agenda. Jesus was not doing what Judas thought he ought to be doing as they rode into the kingdom together. And it all goes sideways, and Judas came to the place where he said, look, he's a problem. In chapter 12, verse 4, it says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Hey, why, is she, why didn't she sell his ointment and do something else with the money? And Jesus stands with Mary, and Judas starts to get exposed. What's interesting is different gospels record this dinner where Mary, Martha, Lazarus was, and Mary does the ointment. And the Gospel of Mark records this as well. It includes a little more details and a little more dialogue. And then as soon as it's over, this is what we hear in the Gospel of Mark. So Judas left this dinner, 
And here's what it says in the Gospel of Mark. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You know, when you read the Gospels, it's very clear. If you honestly read the Gospels, Jesus is very clear about his position on things. He's very clear about who he is. I am the Son of God who's come out of heaven, and I'm here to save you. I'm here to rescue you. He, 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 he's clear about who he was, and he was clear about why he was here. He was clear that he calls us as human beings sinners and hopelessly lost. He was clear about the fact that there really was a heaven and a hell, but that he loves us. He was very clear on the fact that he loved us, and he came to die for us. That's why I was here. So what's your position on Jesus? Some people just shrug it off and say, Jesus, well, I don't think Jesus really said that, or I, I don't know about that. I don't even believe in Jesus anyway. I grew up in, you know, Jordan or, or, or another country. You know, there's, you know, there is a lot of places around the world where they've never even heard about Jesus and don't even, uh, Jesus, what, what do you mean? Others get really angry. What's your position on Jesus? I'll tell you my position. You know, they get angry. I, I <laughs> never forget uh, I was out in Southern California and uh, at a youth conference. I was a leader. I was a youth pastor at the time. And so one of the activities at youth conference was we'll get a bunch of kids and, and uh, we'll assign an adult to a, a small group of kids and we'll send them out on the beaches in Southern California and talk to people about Jesus. So you go, okay, so I, I got to sign these, these. It was three or four uh, I, I think like freshman girls, you know, and so I thought, all right, this is going to be interesting. So we're walking on the beach, and I thought, well, I better, I better be the bouncer for her or something. So I'm, I'm going down the beach, and um, so I never forget. We walked up to this group of ladies. I said, hey, how you guys doing? They go, oh, I got that. And I said, hey, we're just here, and we're out here, and started, and we're, we're curious. What do you think about Jesus? To get into the conversation, and man, I'll never forget. There was a lady in the group. She looked at me and with fire in her eyes said, I'll tell you what I think about Jesus. You can take your Jesus and jump. And she continued on a rant that I wouldn't repeat here. And I told the girls, hey, we better just move on down the beach. What's your position on Jesus? One of the most Gentle, wise, insightful, brilliant seminary professors I had was a guy named Homer Kent. He wrote books. He was a great seminary. He wrote commentaries. And he said this, the chief cause of unbelief is not inadequate information, but a heart of rebellion against the authority of God in his word. So one group that emerges, that comes screaming to the surface is a group that said, look, I see what Jesus is about, and I see what he's up to, and I see what he's doing. I see him as a problem to be eliminated. Here's the second group. The second group is they saw Jesus as a point of interest to follow, a point of interest to follow. Look at chapter 11, verses 45 and 46. So we're back at the graveside here, and all of a sudden Lazarus comes to life, right? Many of the Jews came with Mary. They saw it and believed him. Next verse. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. You know, there's always people out there like this, right? They're, they're, they, they listen to the police scanners, and, and they they're, they're always want to be in the know. They all want to see what's doing. There's a point of it, and they're running around and collect. I, I, they're like religious rubberneckers. And so that's what these people are. They're religious rubberneckers. Whoa, did you see that? Yeah, yeah. I, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Oh, my goodness. And they run around and tell everybody. And that, that's all they're about. They're, they're, Jesus is this major point of interest to follow. So they're running and telling the Pharisees in Jerusalem, hey, this is what's happening. They're curious to check it out. There's always people like that. 
You know, they're interested in the supernatural or the paranormal or religious movements or, oh, well, hey, there's a church and, and, and there's all kinds of things happening. A bunch of people happening. Man, it's really exciting. Okay, I'm going to go over there and check it out. And so, so they go in. Jesus, the Jesus movement, you know, hey, I, I'm interested. That's interesting. Spiritual awakenings. What is Jesus? What's your position on Jesus? Well, he's really interesting. There's also a group, kind of a subgroup here, who will be called religious observers. Now, they're a little bit more than just interested. They're kind of like, hey, I'm going to get a little bit more involved. So they join a church. So the, the, the religious observers here, uh, these, these were Jewish people who were practicing, right? You hear people say that sometimes. Well, I'm such and such, but I'm not practicing. Um, so religious observers are those who are practicing, right? And this is the group uh, that we see here in chapter 11, verse 55. Notice this group. It says this. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So they're going, hey, we're going we're gonna to attend Passover. That's what we do. We're going through purification rites. They're religious observers. Now, what's their position on Jesus? Well, here's what it says, verse 56. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he's going to show up to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So, you know, hey, this was interesting, man. Put a little life to the Passover festivities, you know? So they're walking around with their wanted poster with Jesus' picture on it, looking around, going, what do you think? So if you came up to them and says, you know, what's your, what's your position on Jesus? Hey, it's fascinating, man. He's the thing to do. Look, have you seen him? Have you seen him? Do you know churches are full of people who see Jesus as just a point of interest to follow. Elizabeth Elliot, maybe she's known to a, a number of you. She, she came to, to be known by so many people when as a young uh, wife, her, and her husband Jim Elliot were missionaries and uh, trying to reach some tribal people, and the tribe came out and speared, killed her husband. And she survived and um, went on and, and had, had quite a ministry. Ended up going back to the very tribe and um, saw God do some amazing things. She tells a story about when she grew up. As she was growing up, she had a little brother named Tommy. And the story goes that if, you know, he, Tommy was told that if you're going to play with your toys, you got to put them away when you're done. Well, one day Tommy's playing with his toys and the time came to practice his piano. Now, in this particular home, when you practiced your piano, you practiced the hymns, the old hymns, and you, you played those hymns. And so the mom came in, and he's practicing playing his hymns, and the mom said, hey, you didn't put your toys away. And Tommy replied, but mom, I'm singing praises to Jesus. And the mother replied, there's no use singing praises to Jesus when you are being disobedient. And see, Jesus' commentary on many of the Jewish worshipers, the, the, the religious observers was this. Jesus said, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what's your position on Jesus? Now, I want to be clear. There are some in this group, a point of interest to follow. There are some in this group that are on their way to believing in Jesus. In fact, every true believer begins by being drawn to Jesus. Have you heard of Jesus? And something in you draws you to him. It's fascinating. No way. This really is the Christ. He becomes beautiful to you. He becomes, wow, he really did love me. And you get this connection. So every true believer begins by being drawn to Jesus. But, listen, but as we've seen in the Gospels over and over again in John, there are many religious observers who follow Jesus as a point of interest, and they never get to the place where they go, hey, you know, this is serious. Like, I got a personal relationship with him. I'm all in. They never get to that place. 
They're not born again. They're not children of God. They really aren't. Their heart isn't really obedient to him. They come to church and sing praises about Jesus, but their heart is far from him. There's a third group that emerges. So there's a, a group that says, look, Jesus is a problem to be eliminated. There's a group that, hey, he's interesting at a point of interest. The third group is this. They see Jesus as the promised Savior that they believe in. The promised Savior to believe in. You see it, it go back to the graveside again of Lazarus. Chapter 11, verse 45, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And watch carefully, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. These are people that stood there and went, oh, my goodness. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection of life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And then he walks in and raises Lazarus from the dead. And there were people standing there in the crowd that went, Oh, my goodness. And the light comes on, and they're in. Jesus is the promised Savior that I believe in. Chapter 12, verse 11, talks about these people as well. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death. Why? Because on account of, of him, account of Lazarus' resurrection, many of the Jews are going away and believing in Jesus. So when you're, when you're, what's your position on Jesus? Well, if you ask these folks, they say, man, I believe in him. This is the Christ, the Messiah that's sent from God to rescue and save me from my sins. Oh, my goodness, that, that's my position on him. Martha, Lazarus' sister, would represent somebody in this group. Remember when Jesus shows up, finally, Bethany, Martha goes, man, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus has the conversation with her in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, and Jesus says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And Jesus asks Martha, do you believe this? Listen to Martha's response. John eleven twenty seven. she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. Mary, Martha's sister, Mary, it was evident that she as well had found Jesus Christ to be her Savior in this incredible expression. She comes and with this ointment anoints him. And everybody's saying, what in the world is she doing? See, this wasn't a religious observer, whatever. No, it was an expression of a very real heart that had been transformed by the love of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, hey, she's anointing my body for burial. So what's your position on Jesus? If he's the promised Savior to believe in, then what you say, you say, hey, who is Jesus to you? What, what, what's your position on this? And you're in this, you say, man, Jesus lived the life I should have lived and then died the death I should have died. And I believe in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins. No, he's my Savior. This thing's personal for me. This thing's real for me. I have life in him. See, Christmas season is somewhat of a cultural moment. Every year it comes, Christmas season. It's somewhat of a, culture, a cultural moment that does bring to the surface. doesn't create a bunch of flashpoints necessarily, but it creates to the surface, hey, what do you really believe about Jesus at Christmas time? And you'll hear people say, hey, we got to get this out of there. we got to eliminate this. we got to quit calling it Christmas. Don't call it Christmas. Call it whatever, whatever. All right. You know, it's a problem to be eliminated, right? There are other people who say, no way, man. We like Christmas. We go to church. We like the Christmas carols. We like singing this stuff. And we like the presents. We all, all yeah, celebrate, you know, it's the birthday of, of Jesus. But then there's the other group that goes, oh, no. When Christmas comes, you think of the words that the angel said to Joseph. Call his name Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins and this is the group that goes oh man christmas it's my savior 
He was promised to come and rescue me, and he's mine, and he holds me fast. So what's your position on Jesus? We walk through the story, and you go, these, these, these three groups emerge. Where do you find yourself? Where, where, where are you? Hold the question a second. We're going to take a few minutes and back up and look at three, I think, very critical considerations. When you're thinking about what your position is, back up and... Um, Here's three considerations from the text that I think are, are, are worthy of thinking about. One, notice from the story the danger of self-deception. The danger of self-deception. In chapter 11, verses 49 and 50, it's incredible that what's gathered is a group of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, in the nation of Israel. You've got the council together. This is the Sanhedrin. And they're gathered together. And they're going, what are we going to do with Jesus? And they're all upset about it, and ins and outs or whatever. And Caiaphas, Caiaphas is the high priest this year, and he gets up and he says this in verses 49 and 50. You guys know nothing at all, nor do you understand. Caiaphas sits with the religious leaders. What are we going to do with Jesus? Man alive, if people are believing in him, this whole thing's going to get turned upside down. We're going to lose our place. We're going to lose this. We're going to lose this. And Caiaphas comes in and says, you guys are idiots. You don't understand. You don't understand. Here's the deal. It is better for you that we kill Jesus. It's the best thing for you. It's the best thing for our people that we kill Jesus. So he says, you do nothing at all, nor do you understand. It's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. One commentator says it made sense. It made sense to this group. It made sense to murder an innocent man for reasons of political expedience. So I have the... Um, I love being a pastor. I love being a pastor in the same town for almost 40 years. I, I love it. I love it, right? But I, I, it, I also have the unfortunate position as pastor when it comes to, I have to listen to and have listened to all these years, people for some reason feel obligated to give me reasons why they don't come to church <laughs> and why they don't go to church. You know, I'll be out playing golf with a guy I don't know. Hey, this guy's a pastor. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm, you know, they just start telling me some church that they, they attend. Well, I really don't go much. And it's like, you know, I didn't ask. I'm not asking. <laughs> but they feel like they need to tell me, right? All of a sudden, they're weighing in on their church attendance and why they're not going and whatever, whatever. And especially this many years, I run into people that used to come here and they're, they're telling, you know. Anyway, so over the years, I have to listen to it. Now, some of the reasons are legit, right? But some of the reasons, I'm, I, I bite my cheek and I'm going, seriously, hey, hello, hello, are you really saying this to me? Are you really? So all of that to say, I got a kick out of this. Uh, it went around the office um, uh, a couple weeks ago, and it is 12 reasons that Christians don't attend sporting events. And it's kind of a spoof on why people don't attend church, right? So here's 12 reasons why Christians don't attend sporting events. I'm going to hit a couple of them. The coach never came to visit me. I was in the hospital, never came. Um, second, every time I went, they asked for money. Three, the people sitting in my row didn't seem very friendly. Four, the seats were so hard. Number seven, some games went into overtime and I was late getting home. Number eight, the band played some songs I'd never heard before. Number nine, the games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and to run errands. Ten, my parents took me to too many games when I was growing up. Number 12, I didn't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sports they like or if they like sports. Here's the point. Have you realized, are you self-aware enough you know, our ability to rationalize is frightening. My ability, your ability 
to rationalize is frightening. Our ability to convince ourselves that we're right, our ability to justify our actions, to think that God understands given our situation. Oh, I, I, I can't imagine God, 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 you know, oh, really? It's frightening. Our ability to rationalize an affair, our ability to rationalize lying, our, our ability to rationalize stealing, our ability to rationalize revenge, ability to rationalize why we're just going to shut down a relationship, we're not going to engage somebody else, we're, we're going to hold the bitterness and anger, our ability to rationalize an abortion. You know, sometimes people say, well, I can't understand somebody rationalizing abortion. I can, I can understand it. I'm very, I, I'm aware, are you aware of the frightening ability we all have to rationalize? I mean, you got, the, you got the religious leaders and the high priest saying, you know what? It's really better that Jesus dies. All agreed? Say aye. Aye. All right, let's make plans to kill him. Whoa. This is why it is so important that all of us continue to humble ourselves, humble ourselves before God and his word. Why? Because that's the only thing that can expose and cut down into our self-deception. Listen to what it says in Hebrews. I, I'm so dependent on God's word. And so many of you, I, you, you, you savor God's word. Why? Why, do you, why are you so Well, because here's why. You know, Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You know, why did you do that? Why did you go into that? Why did you fly off the handle like that? I don't know. That's right, you probably don't. So who's going to know? Pascal said, The heart has its reasons. The reason knows not of. Well, how are you going to get down into that? The Word of God. The Word of God can get down into. Well, I don't know. Well, God knows. And His Word can show you and help you get down into that. I need that kind of thing, right? Verse 13, it says, And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So, Notice the danger of self-deception. Second, notice in the story, it's so interesting, there's our plans and then there's God's plans. There's our plans and God's plans. These guys are making plans, right? Got some sharp people getting together, 70 people, they're making plans about what to do with Jesus. And in verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death, they made plans to circulate amongst Passover, right? Now, verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So they're making plans, okay? How are we going to kill? We've got to make plans to kill him. All right, how are we going to find him? All right, let's get word out among all the people coming to Passover. You see Jesus, let us know so we can get arrested. They're making plans. Then the whole Lazarus resurrection creates an issue. Right? Lazarus is raised from the dead, chapter 12. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They got plans, man. These guys, these guys make plans. Chapter, yeah. And guess what? You know what's, you know what's amazing? They pulled it off. Yeah. They made plans. And they pulled it off. They killed Jesus. You go, what? It was evil. I know. Stuff happened in your life. People make plans. It's evil. And they pull it off. They get away with it. How do you process that? Well, fast forward 
A couple months, literally, from this point, when they're making all these plans and pulling it off, fast forward just a couple months, Jesus has died, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. Now it's the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends, and Peter is preaching, okay? And in Acts chapter 2, I'll give you just a soundbite from the sermon that Peter preached and how he processed all of these things. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Whoa. There are plans, and there are God's plans. Tim Keller, writing on this passage in Acts, in a book I'm reading right now, it's, it's wonderful. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Keller writes about this passage, and he says this. The death of Jesus was destined to happen by God's will. It was not possible that it would not happen. Yet, no one who betrayed and put Jesus to death was forced to do it. They all freely chose what they did. The chief priests, the Pharisees, Caiaphas, Judas, they all freely chose what they did and were fully liable and responsible for their decisions. Jesus himself puts these truths together in one sentence out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. It says this, Jesus said, The Son of Man will go to his death as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Do you got a God that big? When you watch the news or things crash into your life and evil plots unfold and devastate you, there are plans and there are God's plans. Is, God, is your God that big? How sovereign is he over the affairs of man? Third, third thing, uh, the, the crucial considerations here from this text I, is really amazing, is that Jesus sees your heart. Jesus sees your heart. Now, this can be terrifying, or it can be incredibly motivating and comforting. All depends on what's in your heart. Jesus sees your heart. That's going to go off depending, well, it can be terrifying or motivating. For Judas, it was terrifying. You know, that incident at dinner when Mary pours out the perfume and Judas gets up and says, hey, what's she doing? You know, the guy sounded incredibly spiritual, didn't he? Do you know that at that point in the proceedings, no one knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus except Jesus? <laughs> All the disciples are shocked. What, what? In fact, when they're... When they're this is a sidelight, but when they're sitting around the, 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 the Last Supper, okay, when they're sitting around the Last Supper, and, 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 and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. The disciples are all looking around going, what, what? No, nobody in this group would betray him. They were shocked, right? But Jesus saw it. And Judas stands up at, the, at that dinner and sounds so spiritual. Well... We, we could have sold this and given it to the poor. Do I have an amen? All the disciples are like, yeah, 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 that's right. Oh, and Jesus is like, it's disgusting. Jesus saw his heart. And he left that dinner and made plans with the Pharisees to betray him. See, 1 Samuel 16 says, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, flip it around. What if you're married in the story? What does that mean to you that Jesus sees your heart? Oh, it means everything. Because Mary, out of an absolute love and devotion, takes this 
very extremely expensive perfume. I mean, it was worth, hey, we could have sold this for 300 denarii. What, what is that, you know? It was, it, was, it was the wages of a worker for a year. This was not, you know, some cheap little stuff you get at the drugstore, you know, right? This was, this was Mary and Martha and Lazarus apparently were people with some means. And so Mary, in this extravagant expression of love and gratitude and devotion to her Jesus, she comes into the room and she breaks this and pours it all out on him out of love and devotion and worship to Jesus, all right? What happens in the room? Well, the John, Mark's gospel says it wasn't just Judas that objected. Judas goes, wait, hey, man, what is she doing? We could have sold this. It says all the other disciples were weighing in. It says they were indignant and they scolded her. Guys, put yourself, you're Mary, right? You're Mary. And you come out of this love and you do this for Jesus. And there's his disciples. What are you doing? That's ridiculous. They're scolding her. Well, we could have done this. We could have done this. We could have done this. And it says, I love this. I love this. The gospel of Mark, it says that Jesus weighs in and he says, you leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. Imagine what those words meant to Mary on that setting while everybody's down on her. And she's just going, but I love him. I love him. And Jesus says, leave her alone. What she did was a beautiful thing. Why? Because Jesus saw her heart of worship. And he sees yours. He sees yours. You know, uh, I, I don't know this for sure, but I got a hunch the Apostle Paul knew what Mary felt that night at dinner because I think Paul felt the same way when he carried out his ministry and people second-guessed his heart and everything else. And the Corinthian church was the worst at it. The Corinthian church was always going, well, Paul, you're just this, you're just that, you're just doing this, you're just doing that. And Paul, you know, the people didn't see his heart. So how did Paul, how did Paul handle that? Well, he knew God saw his heart. And I, and I, I, I love this passage in 1 Corinthians 4. Um, it, it, he tells the Corinthians, he says this, he says, look, with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He says to the Corinthian church, look, look, you guys are weighing in, you're voting on me. It, 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 it matters to me very little what you think of me. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself, but I'm not aware of anything against myself. In other words, Paul says, look, I'm very sensitive to what's going on in my heart and what my motives are, but I can fool myself. See, Paul was aware of the power of self-deception and rationalization too. And he says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but that, that doesn't acquit me. It is the Lord who judges me, he says. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness, listen, and will disclose the purposes and motives of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation and praise from God. Listen, knowing that Jesus sees your heart can be incredibly comforting and incredibly motivating and incredibly encouraging. So, critical considerations. We round third and come back to where we started, and I leave you with a question. So, you stood by the graveside, saw Lazarus resurrected. You saw different people taking positions on Jesus. What's yours? What's yours? C.S. Lewis journeyed from atheism to Christianity. He documents a lot of his thinking in the classic work, Mere Christianity. And he came to the realization that Jesus was either a liar or he was a lunatic or he was Lord. What's your position? 
And I want to remind you as we close and put a pause on this study in the Gospel of John, I want to run ahead just for a moment and remind us of why John wrote the Gospel. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, I think it's on the screen. Look at what it says. Now, Jesus did many other signs. In other words, raising Lazarus, that was just one of a lot of the signs that Jesus did. In the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Here's why John wrote his gospel. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ and do you have life in his name? Listen, today, just like then, plots are in motion. I love the song we started out with this morning. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. Hey, wake up, church. This world has devils filled, and it threatens to undo us. Plots are in motion constantly. Watch the news, the social media, Satan and his dominions. Look into your own heart. You got to give careful consideration to these things, please. The danger of self-deception. God's plans, our plans. Jesus sees your heart. So, what's your position on Jesus? Because it has significant and eternal and profound ramifications on your soul and your well-being. Let's pray. Father, your, your word is so powerful and it's so relevant to us. You're alive, Jesus, you're alive. And so, um, man, I, I just, I, I would plead with you not to leave here without asking God to give you clarity on what your position is. And maybe this morning you've spent someone that's been interested in Jesus, and you're going, wow, all of a sudden you're going, hey, I'm all in. This is it. I, I, I believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had died for me. And you and your heart of hearts right now are going to say, yes, Lord. I'm in. I'm yours. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Father, um, thank you that we can celebrate you. So we're amazed that you loved us enough to come and die for us. And the hope that we have those of us who know you and are yours, the hope that we have as we look into the future is astounding. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.